1: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Mauricio Raul. Thanks for being on the show again, Mauricio.
0: Thanks for having me back, Whitney. Really enjoying this uh, the series.
1: No, I'm always honored to have you on the show. You know, I've seen you all over the place, you know, social media, you're helping so many people in this industry and, and really just uh, putting out things we need to hear, things we need to know. And, and uh, you know, in case the, the listeners, uh, you know, you've probably heard of Mauricio. And if you haven't, you need to go back and listen to a few shows. I know show, uh, WS-194 and WS-262 were a couple. We may have even done more than that. I can't remember now. Uh, but just some key things that, you know, Mauricio is really bringing to light that us in this industry, you know, as operators need to know is very important, but a little bit He's the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, an internationally recognized securities firm that spends 100% of their practice on syndication for real estate investors. He regularly travels around the country speaking to real estate investors and entrepreneurs, educating them about the syndication legal piece, and how it fits in the overall syndication puzzle. He's known for taking complex matters and making them easy to understand and is jokingly referred to as as one of the few lawyers who actually speaks English. That's funny. But he shared the stage with you know people like Robert Kiyosaki, Ken McElroy, Peter Schiff, Brad Sumrock, and of course, the real estate guys. You know he, he knows you know all these big players in the industry he's working with with them. He's been in this business a long time and I'm always honored to have have you on the show Mauricio and just to share your expertise uh, with me and and with the listeners. But, you know, today, you know, Mauricio and I we were talking about uh, you know, some just key topics that that are really hot in this industry right now and some things that people are struggling with. And one thing we wanted to talk about and discuss today in depth was how to work with international investors. I've had that question numerous times, you know, to me, and I've had people say, you know, what, you know next time you get Mauricio or somebody like that on, you know, I'd love to know more about this. And... You know, so so here we are, and uh, you know, international investors, and and you know why that's important, why we want to make sure we're doing it legally, and and uh, but Marusio, you know, get us started. I know there's you know some major considerations that we need to be thinking about, and uh, and I know I'm going to have lots of questions along the way, but you know, let's just dive in.
0: So yes, a lot of clients, you know, the the international thing comes comes into play not all the time but quite a few times and I there's always the same kind of concerns or not concerns but things you could really have to think about right again just remember it's not your job to know every single statute out there and every single law whatever that's what your attorney's for it's really your job mostly to sort of identify and say hey wait a minute that may be an issue let me pick up the phone and call my attorney and maybe the attorney doesn't even specialize in that area, but then they can refer you to somebody else. But again, so your job is just to identify these issues. So that's really what I'm going to try and go through today is just identifying some things. I think just in really broad strokes, the first thing you've got to recognize is that most countries, they not, may not necessarily be as robust as ours, but most countries have their own securities laws. So whenever you're dealing with international investors, you just got to be cognizant of that. I obviously am not an expert in the securities laws of other countries. I'm a U.S. attorney, obviously. Some countries like Canada a very developed securities laws and they're not, they're kind of similar to ours, but you've got certain considerations. I'm guessing if you go to, you know, Afghanistan, you know, they probably don't have as a robust securities laws, but just keep that in mind, especially if you're traveling. Most likely if you're doing it here in the U.S. and you're staying in the U.S. and, and somebody just happens to somehow, maybe they're listening to your podcast with me in some other country and they somehow connect with you, you know, that may, may be fine. But it's, if you're traveling abroad. You know, maybe down in Mexico, or if you're if you're from another country and you travel to your own country and do a presentation to try and raise funds from international folks, just keep that in mind. You want to make sure you're complying with the securities laws of that country. So that's kind of step one.
1: You know, that's an aspect of this I haven't even thought of, honestly. Yeah. If I am in another country, Canada or Spain or Mexico, wherever, and yeah, I'm doing that presentation, that I need to understand what the regulation is in that country. I I mean, the last thing you want to do is get in trouble while you're abroad, right? (laughs)
0: I not know. I guess if you're in the US, Canada's got some really robust. I think Mexico's pretty good. But, you know, I lived in, as you guys know, I lived in Belize for a couple years and their securities laws are pretty, you know, paltry. And uh, so it just depends. But just keep that in mind. Just uh, make sure. And, and same, by the way, same goes for the, and we'll talk a little bit about this uh, in one of my, my things to consider is on the tax side. Always keep that in the mind, too, when you're dealing with international investors, just think about the tax and make sure you're talking to a tax professional in that particular country because I have no, well, I have very little knowledge on, well, I know enough knowledge to be dangerous about U.S. tax law. I'm not obviously a tax professional, but certainly have no clue about Mexican tax law or, or Canadian tax law. So anyways, that's kind of point number one. The main thing I think you want to remember, keep in mind is, and, and I say this not really jokingly, it really is true. When you accept money from an international investor, somebody who's overseas, physically overseas, and let's go with an example. Let's say you've got an investor in England. I'm just going to bring that up. So you have an investor in England. Somehow contact you. They want to wire over, you know, hundred thousand dollars, and they want to invest in your project. The first thing you've got to realize is that you really do become an agent of the IRS. That is because you have a requirement, a legal requirement, to withhold. 30% 30% of whatever monies goes back to England, your your responsibility is to withhold that 30% and send it on along with some forms to the Treasury Department. And again, I'm not, not well versed in the technicalities and what forms they are and how that mechanics works. So definitely check with your CPA. But it's really important to be working with a CPA who understands international transactions because that is a requirement of yours. And, and if you think about it, the reason that that is there is the international investor has Is going to owe taxes in the U.S. most likely based on whatever you know profits they generate here in the U.S. but they have zero incentive to come over and file a tax return at the end of the year and and get you know and pay their taxes right and so what this does is it forces the investor to actually file if they want to get some of that money back to file their tax return here in the U.S. and it's not a 30% tax it's a 30% withholding just like any withholding so it may be that the investor owes less than 30%, but they have to come in, file their tax return to get that refund. Uh, obviously, if they own more, they're, you know, they're probably not gonna have to tax anything. But the key thing to remember is that you are going to be responsibly, legally responsible if you don't withhold that money, they don't uh, file a tax return, they don't pay their taxes, you are technically on the hook for that. So it's really, really important to be checking in with your CPA, let the CPA know that this is what you've done, And hopefully they understand what to do. And if not, I recommend either consulting with somebody who has experience in cross-border taxation, or maybe switch to CPAs if your CPA isn't up to to speed on that.
1: So if that investor doesn't pay that tax, we are on the hook for that. I just wanted to say that again. Correct,
0: correct. So it makes total sense, right? I mean, why would you? Why would, if I'm a Mexican investor and and you know and I got my money and I don't I don't travel to the U.S. I have really no connections to the U.S. Like, why would I bother filing a tax return and, and handing over twenty whatever the, the rate that the amount is the tax that I got to pay? So anyway, that's that's kind of point number one. I don't know if you have any questions on that, but that's kind of the that's probably the main the main thing. And again, I just want you guys to recognize that point. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to understand the, the logistics. Just understand that. So when you do have an international investor, you're talking to your CPA and you're letting them know, hey, I've got an international investor.
1: Sounds like a lot more work on that CPA as well. Yes. So a bigger expense there probably for us yes. as the operator.
0: Yes. Uh, one of the things you might be able to do, and again, you want to check with your CPA, because again, I get, different, um, I get different answers on this. But one thing you might be able to do is set up have the again easier said than done but have the the foreign investors set up a us llc fund the us llc and invest through that llc that happens and obviously the investor is going to your investor is the us llc you would simply issue the the us llc at k1 you would wire the money into the the bank account of the of the llc and then it's up to the international guy to or gal to, to, to figure out how to get it back to their country. Or maybe they don't want to, maybe they have other investments in the US and they want to keep it in the US. And so so that's another thing you may want to consider talking to your CPA about, see if that's one way I wanna say around it, but again, I, I hate using those words. It seems like it's nefarious and I'm just it's not, it's just one one thing to, one additional thing to discuss with your CPA.
1: So, I mean, that's something I wanted to ask you anyway, because I've heard other people doing that. You know, it's like, you know, instead of us really dealing with the international piece, that person setting up the LLC, you know, US entity, that entity invests in our deal, just like any other, you know, LP or passive investor would, you know, just like, you know, if I had an entity here that I'm investing with you, Mauricio, you know, no different, you know, right. They have a US entity as, as an international investor, they're investing in our deal. And then we communicate and correspond with that US entity. Yes. And that's, are we then protected from having to pay that tax if they don't, you know, if they well, take that I'm money doing. then? Yeah.
0: So, number one, yes, that makes your life way easier. And so you're kind of shifting the burden away from you and onto your investor because the challenge for the investor, especially these days, and again, I'm not a banking expert by any means, but, you know, my experience has been if the bankers these days want to see you face to face, most of them, especially the larger banks. So, if you want to open a bank account at Bank of America, like I had this issue when I was setting up entities in Wyoming, when I was doing asset protection and we wanted to set up a Wyoming bank account. And when I started doing it, we could do it, re- first of all, in the old days, you could literally do it remotely. You would, you would overnight the docs to Wyoming and you would just fill out the forms, sign them and everything got handled you know, via the mail, great. Then you know, after 9-11, a little bit stricter and it became, well, they have to kind of see you face to face, but the way we were kind of getting around that is we were using actually Wells Fargo it was the only major bank in Wyoming, you would have to go to a local Wells Fargo branch, show your ID, prove that you're a real person, that you're not, you know, a terrorist. And then the local branch would then communicate that to the Wyoming branch and say, hey, you know, Whitney, stop by. He showed me his ID. He's all good. So that kind of was a little bit of an extra step, not a huge deal. Then it got to the point, where, no, 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 The banker has to see you face to face. And so logistically, that may be an issue if you've got to force your international investor to fly to the US, right, to, to meet with the banker and open the bank account, you know, in person. It also is a little bit, more of a hassle to get you know, an EIN for, your, for the LLC because the EIN, typically when you and I set up an EIN or, or apply for an EIN, we simply use our, an EIN by is the employer identification number, it's kind of the social security number for the LLC that you need to open the bank account for the LLC. Well, if you're an international investor, you don't have a social security number, obviously. So uh, you need to have a, I believe it's called a taxpayer ID number. And not, they probably don't have that. So they've got to apply for a tax. So they just it's just all these additional burdens. And so, yes, you can do that. You're essentially shifting the burden from you and all the, all the compliance and stuff you have to deal with and you're putting it on the investor. But just keep in mind, the more hoops you give your investor, the, the more likely it might be where the investor might just say, you know what, forget it.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, and I've
0: also, by the way, this was, wasn't one of the things I was thinking of talking about, but it came up the other day too. And where did I hear this? Um, I heard this, um, I can't remember if it was the mastermind I was there last weekend or somewhere, but somebody was telling the story, again, anytime you're dealing with international wires from international investors or anywhere internationally, there's a chance that they put a hold on it. You know, they're, they're, all, they're, so, they're so concerned these days about, you know, anti-money laundering statutes, which we'll talk about in a second, you know, terrorists and, you know, all this stuff that it's not uncommon I'm not going to say it's normal, but it's not uncommon for them to either put a freeze on it and and you may be you may be two weeks where the funds are frozen or they may even disappear because again i'm not I'm absolutely not super versed in this, but I do understand there there are some departments, federal departments that, that are kind of monitoring these things, and they'll go in and grab the money and take it out and keep it and then do their due diligence and it might take them two weeks to do it so and I've seen horror stories where monies are completely blocked. You're trying to make a pay an invoice and they just don't allow the money to come through. So there's all these things that you just, you've got to think about when you're dealing with international monies. And, and if it's a large amount, I think this particular story that I, this really a horror story I was listening to, I think there's like a $5 million wire. So it was, a, it was a significant amount. And the recommendation was, you know, if you're going to have a significant amount like that, you, you may want to pop into the bank and talk to a bank, a, per, you know, a personal banker and say, hey, look, guys, I'm going to bring in, I've got $5 million coming in, FYI. Is there anything you need from me to make sure that you know it's all good and what are the documentations you need? This is where it's coming from so that you don't have that issue. Because if you're trying to close on Monday and they put a a hold on a significant, and I'm assuming it's gonna be a significant amount of money if it's coming from international, usually those those guys don't invest 50 grand. You you may want to pop into the bank and discuss that with the banker and just give them the heads up and find out. Every bank's different, so find out what their process is and what documentations they want to see so that the transaction is as smooth as possible.
1: Sounds like you know we need to be building this relationship with this international investor and it'd be nice if they had that entity, you know, already established and, and the funds already transferred but long before we had that deal.
0: Absolutely, that's one of the, that's one of the advantages and again it's just yes, if you have a long-term relationship then yes and and maybe you know if it's a really great relationship maybe it does make sense for the international investor to come visit the property, maybe come meet you in person and that way when they're here you know they can set up the bank account and take care of everything, and that therefore they can wire the money ahead of time, and so this this doesn't become an issue because once the money's cleared, obviously, and in the bank account in the LLC, the international LLC's name, uh, it's a US LLC that's owned by the international person. Then then it's then it's just a, a normal transaction.
1: Okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So, another consideration. What, what else should we be thinking about? The other consideration, which I kind of
0: alluded to it. So, it's not, not a, I don't think it's a huge, maybe I'm going to put my foot in my mouth when I say this. I don't think it's a huge, huge consideration, but there is a consideration of the money laundering, right? I mean, you, you as you guys know, especially these days, that they're very, they use the money laundering statute, but it really has to do with terrorists and you want to make sure that these, this money coming in is not from some terrorist organization or it's been laundered through some companies and now they're trying to bring it onto the U.S. and stuff. My personal thought, I'm going I'm to stick with personal thought because I certainly haven't done a huge deep dive in, but I think if you go through the traditional means of a, of a banking system – the banking system will will handle that for you. They're not going to take any money from people without doing their know know that customer, you know, do, running the the money laundering stuff and, and making sure that's clean. So I think if it goes through a bank and a clearinghouse and everything, they're going to do their due diligence. I wouldn't be wouldn't be too concerned. Again, I'm probably going to bite myself in the butt here. But you know, these days there are other creative ways that people are are accepting monies. And so if you're taking money, for example, via cryptocurrency, just kind of making this up but you know some other way that you're trying to bypass the banking system maybe it's a paypal transaction i don't know if you can do paypal for 50 or 100 grand but you know just something that bypasses that that compliance portion then i think that is a concern that you again just you don't have to know the rules just think of that as as a potential issue and let's find an attorney or somebody who specializes in the anti-money laundering statutes and rules and make sure you're complying and, and doing whatever it is that you need to do whatever your your obligations are to make sure that the money that's coming in is clean, so that's just one other thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind
1: I've heard that you know people are uh, worried about that you know where is this money coming from what, you know yeah. yeah are we participating in something here that's illegal yeah you
0: know? yeah I mean maybe you know I'm, I'm starting my own little interview thing and may, maybe I'll bring somebody on that specializes in in- money laundering you know maybe it's a banker or something and just make sure we get some clarity but again, I think if you're, if you're going through a traditional bank I haven't heard any issues. That's not to say there there aren't any, but uh, I think you're fine. It's when you start going through through these peer-to-peer. Yeah, you know, uh, ways of doing it, or cryptocurrencies, or a blockchain, where you're bypassing everything that it could be, it could be an issue. The other main main thing, and this this really does become an issue because it can apply to any country. And I again, I don't know the the tax laws or the corporate laws of every country. In fact, I don't know basically of any country. But you know, but Canada has this issue, so this comes up quite a bit when you're dealing with international investors. A lot of times, Canada is probably the most commonly used international investor part. And one of the things you've got to be careful about is just ensuring that the country where the money is coming from recognizes your entity formation. So in this case, an LLC, I don't know, got a little too fancy there, sorry. You're creating an LLC for your syndication, right? Everybody's coming into your LLC, great. Your LLC here in the U.S. is a pass-through, it's a partnership, you know, that's fine. But in Canada, for example, they don't have LLCs but they don't recognize LLCs. They don't know what an LLC is. And I know there's other countries in the same boat, but specifically in Canada, because they don't have an LLC, if you don't do anything, they're going to treat that as a corporation by default. They're going to default that to a corporation, which means they're going to get double taxed. And so I've had this scenario with clients where this hasn't been discussed. Nobody talks about it. Nobody knows about it. And suddenly at the end of the year, the Canadian investor realizes they just got double taxed. Their tax hit is so huge that it basically erodes if not all a significant portion of their return. And so they're not happy campers, right? So they're picking up the phone, whatever. And in this particular case, I think, you know, the sponsor simply bought them out and it was no big deal. But just keep that in mind. Whenever you have Canadian investors, you want to make sure that the Canadian investor is talking and has a Canadian CPA. I'm always happy to talk and communicate with the CPA in Canada for my clients and just make sure that we're structuring it properly. Back in the day, I'm starting to sound old these days, back in the day, it used to be that the only way you could get around that was for the Canadian investor to set up an, what's called an LLLP, a limited liability, limited partnership. It's very specific. And back in the day, there was, I think, only nine or 10 states that had one, Arizona being one of them. So the Canadian investor, kind of what we just talked about, they would actually come to the U.S. or, or call somebody in the U.S., set up an LLP, put the money into the LLP, and then the investment would be from that LLLP, so that now you distribute the money from your LLC to this LLP. And now that's recognized in Canada and you avoided the double taxation. These days, I've got a couple of clients who are actually are Canadian and they've been telling me through their CPA that now you can actually do just a traditional LP. So a lot of times if we are expecting a lot of Canadian investors, instead of setting up an LLC for our own syndication, we'll set it up as a limited partnership uh, just so that we can accommodate the Canadian investors. So again, don't have to worry about all the intricacies and the details. Just anytime you have, especially Canadians or other countries, just, just think about that. And, and, and I would just recommend simply, hey, who's your CPA in Canada, in England, in Afghanistan, in Brazil, wherever? Let me communicate them and say, hey, look, this is what's happening. Is that okay? Or do we need to structure it something somewhere differently to maximize, not even maximize their tax strategy, just to avoid double taxation or, or what have you.
1: It's really getting our expert to talk to their expert. So yes. you all can yes, figure exactly. this out. But, yes. Yeah, but that's Typically,
0: I assume all the other lawyers, I mean, it's a quick conversation. It's just an email. So I typically just like to have, hey, can you just make an introdu- email introdu- introduction? And then I'll email them and say, hey, this is what we're doing. Is that okay? Do, you, do we need to set it up differently for your guy or gal? And that's the way we handle
1: it. You know, one question I thought of, though, because you had talked right away, the first thing was, you know, if we're traveling abroad and thinking about, you know, those security laws in the other countries and and what what about doing like a virtual presentation to investors in, you know, England, like you used, for example, or, you know, another country, what, you know, what if I'm in the US but doing a virtual presentation, you know, or even, you know, something like on this podcast or, you know, however I'm I'm promoting, you know, whatever, you know, what should I be thinking about there?
0: I think that does, you know, again, I think if you're doing a, a webinar, I actually hadn't thought of that. It's not, it hasn't come up in my practice yet, but if you, but I do have clients who are from other, so let's go with back to the England, let's say you're from England and you've got a big group of people in England. You know, one option is, Hey, when you go back to visit your family, you, you put together a little presentation and you make that pitch. That's fine. But I think it doesn't change much. If you do a, a webinar presentation just for your you know, for your, for your, for your British, folks, I think that at least in the US, it would be considered doing, you know, marketing and not sales at that point, but you're marketing into the US, even though you're doing it from outside. And again, you'd have to check the local laws. But if it was if it was reversed, if it was the US, if you had a a British syndication, and they were doing a webinar here in the US, the US would definitely consider that that you're marketing in the US and therefore you have to follow the US rules. So I would be definitely again, aware of that and just make sure that if you're going to go to that extreme, I mean, not extreme, but if you're going to go to that level, of doing a presentation specifically for international investors in a particular country, you probably do want to connect with a securities lawyer, and just make sure that you're not violating laws. And again, again, I don't want to get into the, you know, so what kind of things, but at some point, like if you're doing it in a country that you never plan to visit and never go to, you know, maybe it's not an issue, but if you're, if you're from England and you plan to go visit every so often, you certainly don't want to have some, some regulatory disciplinary action, you know, or some judgment against you in that country for something you did remotely.
1: It'd be a rude awakening when you for that first day of vacation, you know? <laughs> right, right. So right. Uh, any other considerations before we have to go, Mauricio, that we need to be thinking about when dealing with international investors?
0: The other one that I'm just going to talk briefly because this is a, kind of a complete, but I want you guys to be aware of it. If you are raising money exclusively offshore, so this is not a scenario where you're you're doing a U.S. one and you've got a couple of international... You're, you're saying, hey, look, I've got a huge group of people and I've had this like in Asia, right? Like I, I got a lot of contacts in Asia... I wanna do an equity raise only for the people in Asia. And I go out there and I only market to the Asian or any it kind of, does, if I only market internationally, I only sell to people who are international investors who are physically in foreign soil. And I take reasonable steps or really take steps to make sure that that offering does not get marketed in the US or can't really get access in the US. It's completely offshore, right? Then there's actually a separate exemption that we can rely on, which is Regulation S as in SAM, Reg S. We're used to the Reg Ds, we're used to the Reg A's. And there's another exemption called Reg S as in SAM, which only deals with these international offerings because remember, the SEC really doesn't care about international investors, right? They're here to protect the U.S. person and U.S. citizens, U.S. residents, anybody in the U.S. So if you, especially if you physically fly to England and you do a presentation in England and you you've complete your raise over there and you come back with a bunch of checks or wire transfers, and so you have not marketed in the U.S., Then you're going to be most likely be able to rely on this Reg S exemption, but again, you're going to have to then worry about the British securities laws. But at least from the U.S. perspective, you'd have to worry about it. So keep that in mind if you're thinking about doing a raise with only international people who are physically outside of the U.S. and there's no marketing or sales efforts in the U.S. There is that exemption you can you can rely on.
1: Nice, okay, Mauricio. You know we're we're going to be out of time now, but uh, Mauricio, tell us though before we have to go. I know we've had you on numerous times, but uh, you know still like to you know how do you like to give back?
0: If you, you know what, it would be a huge thing for me. I just started, and I may have had it last time, but I started a YouTube channel where I'm starting to add a lot of videos. It's just started. It's fresh off. I think it's about eight videos, but actually there's one on international investing. So if you don't mind heading over there, I'd really love a subscribe. You know, like I said, it just got off the bat, but I think there's a lot of value there. So that's a good way to connect with me. And that's kind of where I'm focusing right now. So I would really appreciate it if you guys did that. And again, there's a ton of videos that I think you'll get a ton of value out of.
1: Awesome. We'll try to have a link to that YouTube channel in the show notes as well, Marusio. Um, and any other way that they should be uh, listeners could connect with you?
0: Yeah, always can reach me. on my, Just email the team. It's team T E A M at premierlawgroup dot net. Team at premierlawgroup dot net. Premier and either me or my assistant will get back to you. And we can. I'm happy to schedule a call with anyone and, and answer any of these questions.
1: Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode.